0: This month on Security Management Highlights.
1: They're not the target of the shooting, but they're in the area and they get hit or even killed. Mexico remains
0: vital to the economic interests of many nations, but drug-related violence is affecting international commerce. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo explains. Most of the time, they're amber alerts for missing children or notifications about natural disasters. Emergency alerts sent to mobile phones in the United States are designed to protect the public, but there are flaws in the system. Homeland Security editor Lily Chapa has scoop. Then,
2: So if a company relies on just metrics, they can actually end up measuring activity that's related to an ineffective process.
0: Metrics alone may not be enough to aid your security program. Tom Schultz of Ernst & Young tells us about the maturity model that could propel your security program to greater success. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Homicides and drug-related violence in Mexico are on the rise, affecting businesses operating in the country. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo is here to tell us more. Hi Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hi Holly. What is the current security climate in Mexico? How are drug trafficking issues and the related violent crimes affecting organizations ability to conduct business in that country?
1: Yes, it's been pretty rough down there. According to an IJET report, which was their report on organized crime and drug-related violence in Mexico. They found that the homicide rate in Mexico increased by 15% during the first 6 months of 2016 compared with that same time period in 2015. And that meant that 9,400 people were murdered across the country in that six-month period of 2016. So underlying that rise in violent crime is a resurgence of activity by drug traffic organizations. People just call them DTOs for short. And what's happening is you have dozens of DTOs now that are basically fighting battles for territory. And so they have these Violent turf wars going on what group can control what territory, and that's spilling out further and further throughout the country. So now, new territories in Mexico that previously didn't see too much drug related violence are seeing more. And then another driver of violent crime there is increased demand for drugs like heroin and meth in the United States.
0: And speaking of the iJet report, you had a source who works for that global risk mitigation firm, who said drug trafficking organizations have become more integrated with the legitimate political and business activity occurring in Mexico. So how does this further complicate the issue?
1: Yes, that's true. And what some of the analysts at iJet say is that since the DTOs are becoming more integrated with legitimate political and business activity in Mexico, there's a rising level of impunity for drug trafficking organizations criminals, iJet found that roughly 90% of DTO crime goes unreported to police. Because of the integration with political and business activity, it gives it some cover, so to speak, where if politicians are involved in this, if quote-unquote legitimate businesses are involved in this, they don't want these things reported. And as a result, most of the crime goes unreported.
0: One of your sources added that anyone operating in Mexico is at risk of becoming collateral Damage In these crimes, so how might they fall
1: victim? Although foreign business people are generally not being targeted directly, they could become collateral damage in crimes like assault or, say, a shooting where they're not the target of the shooting, but they're in the area and they get hit or even killed robbery and extortion where again they're not the main target but they're in an either an area that's being robbed or they're linked to someone who's being extorted in the cases of kidnapping you can have both collateral damage where someone at a foreign business is part of a group that's kidnapped but they're not the main target or you can have them a foreign business person specifically being targeted by a kidnapping that can happen too. And kidnapping is certainly becoming a rising problem there.
0: And Mark, you write that even when kidnapping victims are returned to safety, the trauma could affect
1: their ability to do their job well. Kidnapping is such a traumatizing experience. Let's say an employee of a foreign business is working in Mexico and is kidnapped and held in captivity in a windowless room for days, weeks, months. All right, they're released. You know, good news. They're home safe. But they go back to their office and lo and behold, they're working in a windowless office or a cubicle, that return to a small dark space, that can really trigger terrible memories. Even things like commuting in closed off spaces, crowded underground trains, that may be difficult for someone who is a kidnapping victim. So if you're an employer and one of your employees has gone through an experience like that, you've got to be really sensitive and mindful because these affect can hit at any time so make sure that you know you can do what you can to help your employees
0: mark thank you so much for stopping by today thanks holly one early morning in september 2016 new yorkers were jarred awake by a buzzing noise from their cell phones the short text message on their screens explained that 28 year old ahmed khan rahami was wanted in connection with an explosion in chelsea earlier that weekend rahami was later caught after being spotted by a local business owner Whether the alert directly led to his arrest is unclear, but as Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa explains, the text alerts are a work in progress for the U.S. government. Hi, Lily. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Holly. What is a wireless emergency alert? Who came up with the concept, and what is it used for?
3: They're also known as WEAs, and you and all your listeners have probably received one. They're those automated alerts that make your phone emit a really loud noise and look kind of like a text message. Most of the time, they're Amber Alerts for missing children or notifications about natural disasters. They're actually not texts, though. They're broadcasts from targeted cell towers. Pretty much all cell phones are programmed to automatically receive the messages. The program is supported by the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the wireless communication industry. They're designed to alert people of imminent disasters or emergencies and are geographically targeted and sent out by federal, state, or local local emergency management officials.
0: You write that the WEA system was originally engineered for the cellular networks of 15 years ago, but now researchers are looking into updating the technology so it can send more media-rich messages, like including photos and maybe even maps one day. Why would they want to enhance the system beyond just text?
3: So this particular iteration of the system has been on all of our phones since about 2012, but you're right, the technology alerts use is from 2001. The big problem here is that these really important targeted messages can only be 90 characters long. That's even shorter than a tweet. And if multiple alerts are sent, like telling citizens to shelter in place during a natural disaster, but then advising people to evacuate, It's not easy to tell what order the alerts come in. There is a big study done by DHS investigators that found that the technology to include longer messages, links, and even maps is widely available. We do that kind of stuff every day with our mobile devices. The investigators said it would be easiest to add a default WEA app to all smartphones, which would seamlessly bring the program into the 21st century instead of re-engineering the broadcasting capabilities used today. An app could provide even broader capabilities, like sending you an alert affecting a location you go to a lot, even if you're not physically there.
0: So what are some of the concerns that cellular carriers have posed about the system, and what are some concerns that the average citizen might have?
3: One researcher summed it up really well by telling me that the new technology is not as complicated as the agreement to use it. Right now, smartphone manufacturers build the WEA software in all phones to comply with wireless carriers, but a more robust system or app would put even more of a burden on manufacturers. It's harder to nail down a clear stakeholder, especially when it comes to liability. What happens if someone doesn't get an alert? Who's responsible? And some people are worried about the privacy of the system, since it relies on your location to determine whether you get an alert. But experts point out that people get the messages if they're in a range of a targeted cell tower. So no one is actually tracking the location of people.
0: And one concern that even I personally have and have heard is that the loud buzzing is something that could, you know, potentially wake you up in the middle of the night, disturb your sleep. You also can't disable these alerts, right?
3: Actually, you currently can disable the alerts, but it's kind of hard to do. And you can only disable certain alerts. However, with the new app, there might be a possibility for some alerts to be turned off at a certain time or if you aren't moving, they assume that you are maybe asleep.
0: Thank you so much, Lily. No problem. Metrics tracking is a traditional practice for security departments, but with a maturity mindset, security teams can gain a clearer view of risk and communicate value to the C-suite. Tom Schultz, Executive Director at Ernst & Young, is here to tell us more about his December cover story he co-authored with Tim Williams, CSO of Caterpillar Incorporated, on the metrics maturity mindset. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: When it comes to security, why is using metrics alone not sufficient to measure risk and present value to the enterprise?
2: We all understand that metrics are really important in everyone's day-to-day work, and we know that they can measure activity. And in a lot of cases, they give an organization information on you know, scope of coverage for various processes or geographic coverage. And in order to adequately assess risk, really one has to consider the maturity of those processes as well, and also the maturity of those controls that go around specifically in the security area. It's very important to understand how mature processes are. And we've developed this capability to produce a maturity score and an assessment that helps management understand a number of contributing factors in helping them understand the overall maturity of their organization. Also, we'd like to know, similar to an, an audit, whether the controls and the processes that are put in place are fully effective. And so if a company relies on just metrics, they can actually end up measuring, measuring activity that's related to an ineffective or incomplete or an obsolete process, and that really would give you a false sense of security. So another critical element in understanding this is is really a well-defined strategy. It kind of sets the stage for where you want to be and where you want to go with your security program, and the maturity assessment then forms the foundation for development of a roadmap that you can use to improve your program going forward. So you have to have a strategy, you have to have a maturity assessment, and you really have to have metrics that then measure the activity that goes along with not only your execution, but also your plans towards improving your overall maturity of your security program.
0: You and your co-author, Tim Williams, CPP, write that Caterpillar Incorporated used the program from Ernst & Young to develop a maturity model for its metrics. So what were some of the steps to developing that program?
2: Caterpillar had been using Ernst & Young's information security maturity model since 2011, and they had found it to be an effective tool to measure the maturity of that program. More importantly, even than the measuring the effectiveness, is the ability to present the results in a simple and digestible format to their executive management and their audit. So, based on the success of that program, Tim Williams, the CSO at Caterpillar, asked if Ernst & Young could build him a similar model for physical security. So, we started by assembling a team of security experts, including three past ASIS presidents and seven other CSOs from a variety of industries, as kind of our working group, along with a couple of experts from Ernst & Young. You know, we made sure to include CSOs from global companies as part of the working group to ensure that we could get a model that could be applied globally. Once we got the group together, the next step was to develop the framework of security domains and subdomains and the topic areas underneath that that needed to be covered for us to have a comprehensive model. So after several sessions with the group, we finally had a framework that everybody could agree on, then we needed to start adding the content. And the content included a detailed set of approximately 100 questions or so that were very specific. And the maturity definitions that went along with those questions provided a clear indication of how mature someone would be. And those maturity definitions in the model go from one, which is least mature, to five, which is most mature. And it kind of goes from ad hoc processes to very optimized processes. Then we actually executed the model at Caterpillar in order to verify that it really worked as we expected.
0: How does the maturity model help clarify the discussion with executive management and provide other collateral benefits for the enterprise?
2: The overall assessment produces a detailed report, but then one of the most important things is the what we call the spider chart that appears in, in the article. And that chart sort of gives you all on one page and very quickly a high-level assessment of where your security program is. What we also do is to develop a future state. So in one picture, you can have the executive management team understand where you are in those areas where you need to make improvement over the next, say, two to five years. In addition to that, it becomes very clear very quickly for the executive management team where additional funding may be required. And also in those areas where if you're at the level that you desire from a mature, maturity perspective where just enough funding to maintain the capability is sufficient. So I think that those are really important things that come out of this model.
0: What's next for Caterpillar and Ernst & Young in the maturity model process?
2: I think as we move along and learn more about the current threat landscape and as new risks present themselves, we continue to make minor tweaks to the model. Longer term, since Caterpillar is a unified security organization, they want to combine the information security and physical security maturity models into a single one, which they can then present the results kind of at an overall enterprise security level to their management team. That's their long-term goal.
0: Tom, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, you too. Take care.
0: That does it for this month's podcast. Be sure to check back for bonus material throughout the month and subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. Bye bye.